will now give them their wine, but it shall be only in sport. Then, smiling, he untied his fair braguette, and drawing out his mentule into the open air, he so bitterly all to be pissed them, that he drowned two hundred and sixty thousand four hundred and eighteen, besides the women and little children. Yep, sounds very French to me. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog, where this week we are discussing the horrible and terrifying deeds and words of the very renowned Pantagruel, king of the Dipsodes, son of the great giant Gargantua. My name is Jonas, king of nowhere in particular, and son of the averagely sized man Stefan. And I am Christian, sent here to be educated and to fulfill all kinds of bodily functions. This is quite a ribald book, written in the 16th century by François Rabelais and suggested to us by Bob Kay, our esteemed listener. And Bob, thank you for suggesting it, but we also feel that you should be on some sort of register for bringing quite this book to our attention. I was very much reminded of the last French book we read, The 120 Days of Sodom by the Marquis de Sade, namely in the one hand... I also have to confess I didn't finish all the five novels that actually are collected under the name Gargantua and Pantagruel. And because of the, yes, as Jonas has hinted at, obsession with the human body and all its more or less dirty and disgusting aspects. It is a book about giants and giants have quite enlarged bodily functions. It only stands to reason. As you already said, it is actually not just one book, but a collection of five novels that we are talking about today. The first one is Pantagruel. The second one, Gargantua, a sort of prequel about Pantagruel's father, which in a lot of editions, including the one that we read, is often now placed as the first one. And then three more ones about the travels of Pantagruel and how his friend Penurge tries to find a wife and they encounter all sorts of odd creatures on their travels. We're mainly going to focus on the first book here, or the second book, Gargantua, because it is the best-known one, and at least I found also the most entertaining one. It's the one where most things are happening and most of the famous scenes are from. It is the story of Gargantua, a giant and the father of Pantagruel, who readers already knew from the previous novel. He's born in quite extraordinary circumstances after being carried in his mother's womb for 11 months. She eats a lot of cow's innards and then gets diarrhea, which is why she's given drugs to tighten up all her passages, which also tighten up her birth canal. And so he cannot be born the regular way. Instead, he climbs out through her veins and comes out her left ear. You know, as it happens. He then grows to monstrous proportions very fast. Uh, and equally, he develops very fast in his mental capacities. So he's sent to Paris to study there, gets into all sorts of mischief, but eventually does actually start becoming a scholar. He returns home when his father's lands are attacked by enemies, and the rest of the book is basically filled with the great exploits of him and his friends when it comes to the field of battle. Rabelais wrote the books between 1532, when Pantagruel was published, and 1564, after his death, actually, when the fifth book of Pantagruel was published. 
The books were a giant success, but they were also quite controversial and often subject to censure by the state, by the church, for their very explicit descriptions. And for example, the quote that we read at the beginning, where upon arriving in Paris, Gargantua drowns a whole lot of people in his urine. But also for their very critical and anti-clerical way of describing the classic values and education of the time. This book in the middle of the 16th century is quite typical of an era that was marked by the Renaissance, by religious upheavals, by questioning established values. And Rabelais, who was a monk, but also a physician and a writer, is kind of archetypical for the time. And Gargantua and Pentagoro is seen as one of the founding works of European literature. The impact of the book is obvious, really. Most of you will have heard of some of the scenes, very famous, for example, from Gargantua, the scene where he eats some pilgrims that have fallen into his giant salad because they mistook the lettuces for trees. But the influence on other works, such as Gulliver's Travels, most obviously, but also allusions to it in much of literature are obvious. But actually, the first thing we want to talk about is the impact not on literature, but on literary theory. Michael Bakhtin used Gargantua and Pantagruel to explain his concepts of the grotesque and the carnivalesque. Christian, you wanted to talk about that. Yes. Bakhtin's most famous work, Rabelais and his world, takes the works of Rabelais and sees them as prototypical for the culture of the Renaissance, of the dawn of modernity. He says that, on the one hand, the focus on the bodily functions is a kind of analysis of how these bodily functions are kind of actually reined in by values, by the civilization process of the Enlightenment. But at the same time, the protuberances of the nose and the genitals and the openings of the mouth and the anus are kind of openings. So an ambivalence that is at least discussed in the Renaissance. The difference between the body and the soul, the difference between faith and enlightenment, all of this is archetypical, at least Bakhtin argues so. On the other hand, the carnivalesque is the social order in that degree. Carnival is a time where everything is topsy-turvy. The usual ranks of society are kind of put out of order. And Bakhtin argues that in works like these, where logic, where traditional values of society, of education and so on, are kind of inverted. Also, this is typical of a time where great upheavals changed society, changed culture. And for Bakhtin, this is very liberating. He basically says that the carnivalesque and the grotesque are enlightenment in their purest forms, criticizing established forms, shaking it up, making something new. And maybe that is what this book is, the beginning of something entirely new. It certainly seems like it. It's certainly a very irreverent book. This is also shown in the way that Rabelais deals with language, really. A lot of that is probably lost in translation. Now, we both sort of speak French, but not really good enough to read Rabelais in the original. Je ne comprends pas. But it is obvious, just from the translation even, that this is a book with a lot of wordplay, a lot of puns. So Rabelais' irreverent approach to everything includes language. The one point where I really noticed the sort of biting satire 
was where Gargantua's father sees him combing out his hair and sees lots of cannonballs falling from his hair and thinks they are lice and says, What, son, have you been at that lousy college of Montague? And you sort of get the impression, because they keep going on about how bad this college of Montague is, that Rabelais probably disagreed with the people of that college. Even if you don't know a lot of the illusions, you notice that there are illusions. You know that Rabelais was a scholar and the way he deals with, for example, the classical knowledge taught at that time, Latin, Greek, theology, history and so on. It's very obvious that he all puts it in one giant pot and mixes it and uses it for parodic value. But this parody, uh, let's come to parody, is a bit empty to me now, or at least it doesn't have an impact really because I'm just frustrated because I always grasp, okay, that probably is something I can get here. Sometimes it is uh, very obvious, oh, he makes a pun about uh, le service divine, uh, but he also talks about le service du vin, so the divine service and the service of the wine. Okay, that's a pun that sort of works in English as well, especially if you say it with a sort of southern accent. It's the service of the wine. Um, no, it doesn't work. It, it, it kind of does with a southern accent, with a southern twang. No. But I don't get the illusions. I feel really hamstrung by this because even though I, not to brag, but I think I know a lot about the 16th century. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a historian, uh, if I haven't mentioned that. And I specialize on the time of the Reformation. But I focus on Germany and England. And because of that, I don't really know the French context that much. And even that already hampers me. So I, I think that's a real problem for, for his appeal to modern readers. On the one hand, I agree, and we'll come to that when we kind of do a comparison maybe to authors that aren't that far removed from him temporarily. But on the other hand, I don't mind that much. I can still see the appeal because he is so irreverent and he is still so incredibly prolific with his illusions. There's not a single page where there isn't a giant list of things, of names, where you aren't sure, okay, are these names that actually exist? Are these things common knowledge at the time? Is it some kind of scholarly thing? Is it just something he made up? But I like this thing, that he mixes fact and fiction, that he treats these catalogues of knowledge with the spirit of, I don't care. And I think this emptiness, as you described it, is really the attractive part about this. Of course, it can be frustrating at times. And as I said, it actually reminded me very much of the Marquis de Sade, this focus on lists, on listing everything regarding a certain topic until you just cannot bear it anymore. But at the same time, I think there is actually something very, very, again, proto-postmodernist about this, that there is something that treats literature, but culture in general as well, as something that is not to be taken seriously, as something that doesn't mean anything in itself that can be played with. An example for that is the list of names that the nurses of Gargantua give to his virile member. His penis. One of them. <laughs> his dick. His cock. <laughs> One of them would call it her little dilly, her staff of love. Her quillity, her fauceton, her dandy lolly. Another, her peen, her jolly cow, her barblet. Her member tune, her quickset imp. Another, again, her branch of coral, her female adamant. Her placard racket, her cyprian scepter, her jewel for ladies. And, and so, so on. And, and so, so on. on and so on. But you see, it's a list that's basically just lots of synonyms for penis. 
And as we proved just before I started the list, that's something we still do sometimes. I, I remember especially when I was uh, a teenager in puberty, we would sometimes just find lots of ways to say dirty words. And that was very amusing. So on the one hand, a lot of these illusions are lost and quite highbrow. But th there's a couple of jokes like that again. And the contrast between the highbrow stuff and the very vulgar bodily stuff, that's something that's still funny nowadays. So even if you don't get the illusions or if you sometimes or quite often don't understand what is actually going on, this is, as Jonas has said, still something you can laugh about. And what he's really good at... Uh, Rabelais is at writing scenes. The books don't really have a plot as such. Uh, to add to the grotesque and the carnivalesque, we also should mention the picaresque, because it seems inescapable with any Renaissance prose work that it always is called a picaresque. Don Quixote sort of set the template for everything there. But this quite clearly is a picaresque, especially the later books where they go on long travels, but also the first book uh, uh, where they really only move from their home to Paris and then back to their home and then off to war. But it's just a long list of scenes and then sometimes things get called back. But the scenes also work in themselves. The scene of the Grimms in the Salad, for example, is a great scene just on its own. But my favorite actually has to be the scene of Father John, a monk whose monastery is attacked and he just goes in, interrupts the holy service, grabs the cross from the altar and goes out and slaughters them motherfuckers in the vineyards. And that is such an amazing scene because then it's described in this really gory detail how he bashes their brains and how he rams it through their stomach, how he tears out their hearts. Uh, I love that scene. What is your favorite scene out of all the ones that we have in these books? I don't know exactly. I think I really like the description of Gargantra's birth, as you already described, especially because he comes out of his mother and his first words are obviously some drink, some drink, some drink. And his father is not that surprised, but just says, oh yeah, that's very good of you to do or say. You're right, these scenes are not always logically connected and they are excessive The quote we read in the beginning where he basically pisses in Paris and kills a few hundred thousand people. All of the numbers, all of the things he does, well, he is a giant and giants do extreme things. Although it's also not quite clear how large he really is or how large his son Pandagoril is. Sometimes they seem to be just larger than average. Sometimes they are so giant that there's an incredible scene in one of the later books where Rabelais describes himself, the author, <laughs> under his pseudonym Algofribas, taking a journey into Pantagruel's body and the wonders he sees there, which is a nice piece of metafiction, but also just making shit up again. But I think that's something that's still with us today. We were talking just before we started the recording about Suicide Squad, the film in the DC Cinematic Universe that's about to come out next week, which is apparently, from what we've heard, completely all over the place. It's completely chaotic and beset by non-sequiturs, and then they went back and re-edited it and re-shot certain scenes, and it's just a mess. But some people say it's an entertaining mess. I sort of have my doubts for that. But we were saying we're sort of intrigued by maybe seeing what big of a train wreck it really is. But at least Rabelais does it with relish. At least here, it's not supposed to have a structure. 
There's one interesting thing, though. You said that it, it's a picaresque, but in the picaresque, the main character usually doesn't change that much. And with Gargantua, at least, you also have a kind of a development, a satirical development, but you could also see it as a kind of satirical Bildungsroman. Because Gargantua, in the beginning, is uncultured. He's mainly about farting and eating and farting again. And he's also about the best method to wipe your bum. And you would not believe how often I have discussed this. In my work as a tour guide, where we also talk about how people in the Middle Ages went to the toilet in Heidelberg Castle, people are somehow fixated on this Renaissance bum-wiping. And amongst tour guides, there are certain uh, anecdotes about what people used. And what is actually described in Gargantua, this wiping your ass with a goose's neck is sometimes taken by people at face value, including, I'm afraid to say, the TV program QI and uh, hosted by Stephen Fry. Uh, this is a satire. People didn't actually wipe their ass with uh, goose's necks, I would like to say. But anyway, you were about to say, that's what uh, Gargantua is about in the beginning, farting and eating and drinking. But even there, with the bum wiping, he notices something, he learns something. And his whole journey to Paris, while he does many ribald things, he still manages to learn something. And he's described as a man of education, a scholar of sorts. And he uses that to fight in the war, help his father and so on. So there's a strange appreciation of knowledge, of education, only satirizing the traditional values of education. There's also the famous description of the Abbey of Thelim, a kind of anti-clerical establishment where not just men or women are welcome, but men and women, and they can do what they want. Actually, it pains me to say so. I, I neglected to mention that the last time when we talked about Alistair Crowley in our Crave episode, the famous motto that is mentioned in Crave by Alistair Crowley, do what thou wilt, that shall be the whole of the law comes from Rabelais, from the Abbey of Thelim, and the famous order of Aleister Crowley, his occult organization, was called Thelima. It's all about will, do what you want, and there's nothing else. And that fits the whole topic of early modern times, individualism, critique of traditional values, and so on. You already said that Gargantua sort of grows as a character. Do you find he's really a character? Do you find him relatable? Because... I have to be honest, I kind of did. Because the thing that starts his change and that starts him from just drinking, eating and farting is when they stop making him study the way it has been prescribed for centuries and instead they show him the applications of this learning. For example, they teach him arithmetic, not with numbers, but by playing cards. For example, instead of making him read the Bible, they read it to him at breakfast. And as someone who really values audiobooks and podcasts, uh, I, I could sort of identify with this ribald renaissance giant, which I found quite surprising. I don't know. There are certainly traits that are, even after several hundred years, still identifiable, not just with Gargantua, but also with his son and the other characters. They are not perfect human beings, and they are not just parable metaphors. They are somewhere in between, and that's something you can still identify with. But at the same time, there is still a giant gap, the gap between our time and 
the 16th century. And I think that brings us to something you wanted to talk about, namely kind of comparison between Rabelais' work and the work of the writer we can't stop talking about, who only wrote a few dozen years after Rabelais' death, William Shakespeare. It's no secret that I'm all about Billy Shakespeare, and I find his works immensely relatable. And I found it very interesting that I did not find Rabelais as relatable. I think partly it's just a lack of information, because for the past years, I have been inundated with information about Shakespeare. I have been trained to understand Shakespeare, and I have not been trained to understand Rabelais the same way. And that is a real gap. So, without wanting to sound arrogant, I often struggle to understand why people don't understand Shakespeare. I often am so trapped in my ivory tower of uh, English studies that I think, oh yeah, Shakespeare, obviously we can relate to him. And then in some ways that is borne out. But reading Rabelais, I sort of realized, ah, maybe this is what it feels like to read Shakespeare for normal people who are not as oddly Shakespeare-centered as I am. But I also think Shakespeare still has something different because the one thing that Shakespeare really does that Rabelais does not at all is he writes plots. His works are plays that are performed in a certain span of time and that have to hold the audience's attention and that just makes them a lot more readable, at least in my experience. What would you say? This is one of the few times where we actually agree on something more or less 100%. I had the very same feeling that I could relate to Shakespeare so much more and maybe it's a contextual thing. We are, after all, English scholars Maybe it's also a historical thing. These few years, these few decades that Shakespeare came after Rabelais are maybe essential. Maybe it's also a difference in genre because Shakespeare wrote these plays, these different genres, tragedies, comedies, but for a different audience than the kind of intellectual satire that Rabelais wrote. But yes... I agree. Not only with regard to plot, but also with regard to character, actually. Because, as I said, I also think Gargantua and the others are characters to a certain degree. But they're still one-dimensional characters that are mainly about one thing in a particular scene. And Shakespeare's characters are much more. And I don't want to be all Marxist, but maybe that's also the difference in upbringing between craftsman's son from the country who came to London and had a very different experience than a monk and uh, intellectual who lived in Paris. I very much agree with that. And I think that is ultimately why the author still matters, even though we have talked a lot about how the author doesn't or shouldn't matter. But especially in the case of Shakespeare, I feel very strongly. And if anybody says that he did not write those plays, I I will fight them to we, the death. We have discussed this. Yes, we have. So let us stop talking about Shakespeare because we're talking about Rabelais and let us come to our final judgments. Is this worth your time? Is this something you should read? Christian, what do you say? I really don't know. I think yes, but you should also consider that it is difficult. It is difficult because the language is difficult, because you have to be aware that this is a work that shows how old it really is. And it is difficult because it mixes so many different things. But I also think that this is incredibly fascinating, that there are so many aspects in there that are not only indicative of the time, but that still work today, that are still relatable today. I kind of tried the excerpt approach, looking for certain things, skipping others. And as I said, I didn't read the whole thing. And I don't think you have to do either. But reading it for the spirit, for these episodes and 
reading it for the incredible contrast between incredibly highbrow and incredibly lowbrow that still works today, I think, yeah, check it out at least. I'm basically going to recommend the same thing I recommended with Tristram Shandy, which is read it, but don't worry about it. Because it's not meant to be studied in detail. It can be studied in detail, but if you don't have to write a paper about it, don't read it that way. Just dip in and out of it. It's written in a very conversational tone, and the chapters are very, very short. And they're not really that connected, so you can just read a chapter, put it away for a bit, read another chapter, maybe keep a copy of it in your loo, because that is probably, without wanting to disrespect it, the most appropriate place for it. And just enjoy it. And as Christian said, feel free to skip stuff. There's a whole chapter where a professor of the University of Paris talks to Gagantra about returning the bells. And it's a very funny chapter. He sort of talks about his own comforts and why they need the bells at the university to be comfortable. And But it's also full of Latin quotes. And I don't read Latin. So after a while, I figured, okay, I've got the gist of this chapter. I'll just, I'll just skim the rest of the pages. And that's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. Have fun with it, because ultimately that's what this book is about. But maybe you think, bah, old French nonsense. I don't want to read that. What else you've got? Jonas, is there anything that comes close to being similar to this gargantuan book? <laughs> See what you did there. A lot of things, of course, it was immensely impactful. The obvious comparison is, of course, Gulliver's Travels. You could say that is basically a version of this with a bit more plot and coherence. But I wouldn't want to recommend that, even though it's very good. I want to recommend another book of sort of disconnected scenes that I always found to be very charming and very, very relatable. And that is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Basically, a book without a plot. You could describe the plot of Alice in Wonderland, but why? Because there's not really a point to it. It's a lot of random encounters with a lot of random creatures, much like the later books of Gargantua and Pantagruel. And much like them, she sometimes is a giant, and then sometimes she's smaller again, and then sometimes she's taller again. But she also shrinks down to dwarfish sizes. And it is just very entertaining and something that everyone could stand to pick up again. If you like the fabulating character of Gargantua and Pantagruel, the kind of wild storytelling, but if you want a bit more plot and if you want a bit more contemporary connection, then I would recommend The Thirteen and a Half Lives of Captain Bluebeer by Walter Moers, a German fantasy novel which is surprisingly similar to Rabelais in many respects. And knowing Moers and his intellectual allusions in other of his fantasy novels, it wouldn't surprise me if some of Rabelais is in there. It takes place in a fantasy world, but it is often a very satirical world. And Moers has this spirit of just making shit up and then piling other shit on it. And suddenly it isn't shit anymore, but it's a beautiful and fantastical and imaginary world, unlike any other you've ever seen. There are also giants, many different forms of giants in the 13 and a half lines of Captain Bluebeard. Um, there is one where actually one chapter is just the description of the journey of the main character through the head of this giant. So this book and the other fantasy novels by Walter Moers, I would really recommend if you want some of that craziness in your life. Is that the first time that we've recommended a German writer? Maybe. We are really self-hating, aren't we? <laughs> We're Germans, of course. Ah, yes. 
But what would you recommend? This was the first time that we actually read a book recommended by a listener. Bob, thank you very much for getting in touch with us. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that by writing an email to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. You can definitely find us on iTunes, where please rate and review us. That would help us immensely. It's also another way of giving us feedback. Should we read something? Should we do something differently? You can find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. And you can come back in two weeks' time for our next episode. So, Christian, what will our next episode be? Well, after all the farting and shitting and drinking, let's talk about other things that we usually talk about. You know, things like despair and depression and nihilism. And let's also talk about one of the most influential books of all time, The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. There is a lot of drinking going on, though. And he says crap a lot. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. But also a physician. Physician. A physician. Physician. Have, have another sip of that gin and tonic and it will trip easy off the tongue. Put tops. Are kind of put topsy turvy. Inverted. Oh, yeah. Where. Are inverted. You do the editing, so. <laughs> yes. I don't care. I just wanted to avoid the repetition of topsy turvy. Yeah, that's good. Are inverted. It's what are they? <laughs> put topsy turvy. We'll, we'll figure that out in the edit. No, no, no. I'll, I'll do it again. Where the all... Oh. <laughs>